Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Waterbury Clock Company was located in the Brass City for almost 90 years until it was bought by Timex Corporation in 1941. Parts of the old factory still stand, and with it, the presence of radium, a radioactive element. Coming up, we'll ask a state environmental official about the site's future. Today, where we live, we're talking about the former Waterbury Clock Company because many of the Connecticut women who worked there in the early part of the 20th century got sick. Some died fairly young. These young women became known as the Radium Girls. Later in the show, we'll learn about Waterbury resident May Kane. She was one of the last surviving Radium Girls. May Kane was the great aunt of WNPR intern Tim Cohn. Coming up, Tim and his mother will share their memories of May, and we'll hear from her from a video recording Tim did while in middle school, where she talks about the job she held at the Waterbury Clock Company and the long-lasting effects that it had on her health. Have you heard about the Radium Girls? Did a member of your family work at the same clock factory in Waterbury? Tell us their story. Email wherewelive at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, several books have been written about these women, impacted not only in Connecticut, but in other states as well. Joining us now from the studios of BBC London is Kate Moore, author of The Radium Girls, the dark story of America's shining women. Now, they were called the Radium Girls because they worked in these factories um, with paint that had radium in it. Uh, Tell us about these jobs that these women took, again, around the time of World War I. Being a dial painter at the time we're talking about, as you say, Roaring Twenties and also the First World War, this was a job that was very well paid. It was incredibly glamorous. It was artistic. And these women, often many of them teenagers, were attracted by the high salary, by the camaraderie amongst the workers. And it was seen as the elite job for the poor working girls. When did the company officials know about radium being toxic? And did that information ever get to these young women? Well, it never got to the women. And in fact, they were told the direct opposite. May Cubberley, who I write about in the book, who was one of the New Jersey radium girls, she says the first thing we asked was, does this stuff hurt you? And they said no. They said we didn't need to be afraid that it wasn't dangerous. But you've asked, when did the company officials know radium was dangerous? Well, it was well known that radium was toxic, that it hurt people. But they believed that it was only in large amounts. And one of the really shocking things about the story is that you have May Keane and her fellow colleagues, if you've described, putting radium-laden brushes into their mouths. But in the laboratories of these companies, you had workers who were protected with lead aprons who weren't allowed to touch the radium with their bare hands. And that was because it was well known from the turn of the century that radium could destroy human tissue. 
Uh, now, one of the reasons we're talking about your book today, Kate, uh, The Radium Girls, again, the dark, story of, the dark story of America's shining women, is one of our production interns here at WMPR in Hartford, Connecticut, Tim Cohn. His great aunt was one of these radium girls, and Tim joins me in studio. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Now, you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your great aunt, May Kane. She lived with you uh, for a large part of your life. Yeah, so uh, May actually went to live with us when I was about three years old, four years old, and she lived with us until her death in 2014. So she was with us for about 14 years in total. Um, and I remember May would talk about this as one of her first jobs ever. Uh, she, she went out of high school and then right into the factory and worked there for about one month. Uh, she had a three-week trial period and then one week on the job. And then she was, she was actually handed a pink slip because she was so bad at the job. Um, yeah, she she did not she did not like the taste of radium, nor she liked the grittiness of it, and so uh, the foreman of the factory transferred her to the bookkeeping department. Now, Tim, I understand you interviewed uh, your mother, uh, Patricia Cohn, about uh, her her aunt uh, May Kane. So let's hear this interview you did with your mother, Patricia Cohn. The first thing she noticed was her teeth, and the. When you're lip pointing, the radium really gets into the bones, and it just decays the bones. And she started to notice that her teeth were getting very loose. She was mid-30s when she lost all of her teeth, and that bothered her for the rest of her life. Um, she had jaw pain. Her gums hurt continually until she, to the day she died. She was also unable to have any children that was later attributed to, to the radium poisoning. And uh, she had colon cancer and she had breast cancer. And there were just a lot of health issues that came up for her. She was luckier than most of them, really, most of the girls, because it was such a good-paying job and it was considered a clean job in Waterbury. They stayed a long time and they did and ingested a lot of radium. She was one of the lucky ones. I remember when I would talk to her about the stories uh, when she was living with us and she would, would talk about her, her life. She was oftentimes very sad thinking about the Radium Girls because she had many friends in the factory and a lot of them died you know, 10 years out of, of working in the factories or even less than 10 years. Did she ever tell you about those stories? Did she ever bring up their, their suffering to you as a child? She did. She would talk about how pretty these girls were. They were all 18, 20. They were very young women. And she would say they were pretty and they were happy and they had such wonderful futures ahead of them. And then they started getting sick. And an awful lot of them started getting sick. And then she'd start reading their obituaries in the paper. And it really did concern her. There was the only, the only really common bond between any of them was working in the factory together, painting dials. Um, one of the things that she did tell us was that there was a doctor that the radium company had hired to go around to the factories and examine these women and basically tell them that they were fine and this had absolutely nothing to do with the radium. He used to do this in New Jersey. He came to Waterbury and the friend of May's that got hired with her, said, why don't we go and see this doctor and see if this is from the radium? And they went to see him, and it was the same man from New Jersey, and he wasn't a, an MD, he was a PhD, but they passed him off as a doctor to these young women, and he 
examined each and every one of them and declared that this had absolutely nothing at all to do with radium. It must just be something else in Waterbury because this had absolutely nothing to do with with radium. And she was furious to find out that this was the same man who went from factory to factory and just lied to each and every one of them. They thought he was a medical doctor. Do you remember her ever blaming the radium job that she had? Or do you ever remember her blaming uh, the time that she spent in the factory for her health ailments? Or did she just not talk about it that much? Or was she more quiet about it? May didn't even know she was a radium girl until probably the early 2000s. She knew she were obviously knew she worked in the factory, but radium at that time was a cure-all. She never connected it to the radium she ingested. She thought she was just having peculiar health problems, but she never connected it to that until there was an article in the Waterbury Observer about the factory that they wanted to renovate. And when they went into the building to examine it to see if it was structurally sound, there was radium everywhere. And they said, we can't, not only can we not renovate it, we can't do anything with this building whatsoever. And the story broke. And then there was a radio show about it. And eventually, the street right behind the Timex Museum in Waterbury was named and dedicated Radium Girl Way. And May was the lone survivor, but she was at the dedication of the street honoring these women. And that was a big day for her. Later in in life, when she started to receive a little bit of of press about her being the last surviving radium girl, what do you remember as being probably the most spectacular thing about this for you? Like, what what, what do you what do you remember as being the most interesting about the whole story um, that stood out in your mind? I think the most interesting thing for me and for May as well was that nobody knew about it for so many years. It was a secret, and the state kept it a secret. And that really bothered her. It made her very, very angry. And all she kept saying to me when she found out was that these poor women, they were young, they were beautiful, they were nice, they worked hard, they were just trying to support their families and themselves. And this never, ever should have happened. And she could never actually understand why she lived. Why was she still here and so many of these other young women weren't? And she felt terrible about that. She and her husband were the beloved aunt and uncle, the absolute favorites of all the cousin, all of my cousins. And they had an open-door policy. If you didn't like what your mother had for dinner, you'd go next door and see what May had. And I remember when I was growing up, she had a nice candy drawer, and she always had your favorite candy ready to go, ready for you, and I think that that was something that you probably remember too. She had one drawer dedicated to all the kids' candy in her dining room buffet, and you could walk in, and you could just have your candy, and it was always the stuff that your parents wouldn't buy you. The Junior Mints were my favorite. They were mine too. (laughs) Thanks for talking to me, Mom. Thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You just heard Middlebury, Connecticut residents Tim and Patricia Cohn talking about a member of their family, 
Meg Kane died in 2014 at the age of 107. She was one of the last surviving radium girls, which is what we're focusing the show on today. These women in Connecticut and in other factories in Illinois and New Jersey worked in clock factories in the 1920s, painting glow-in-the-dark dials with radium-laced paint. At the time, they didn't know how toxic radium was. Many of these women got sick, and some died horrible deaths. Um, we're talking about this as well because of a new book that's out by Kate Moore. Uh, she's written The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Just after the break, we're also going to hear um, other stories of Waterbury natives, of relatives who worked at uh, this Waterbury clock factory, including Jackie Carroll. We're going to hear her story after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we're talking about the Radium Girls. This name refers to hundreds of young women who worked in factories in Connecticut, Illinois, and New Jersey, painting watch dials with glow-in-the-dark paint. The paint was made with radium, a radioactive element that's highly toxic. But back then, radium was seen as miraculous. Author Kate Moore writes, The element was dubbed liquid sunshine, and it lit up not just the hospitals and drawing rooms of America, but its theaters, music halls, grocery stores, and bookshelves. That's from Moore's book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. She's with us today from the studios of BBC London. Now, earlier in the show, we heard from radium girl May Kane. Our intern, Tim Cohn, recorded his great-aunt May before her death in 2014. Here she is talking about the process that the women used when they were painting the wash dye. You have that brush in the radium and use it, and then just dip the, the brush in the water. But, of course, you never got it clean. Then you would have to put it in your mouth and point it so that you could use the numbers. And that went on all day long. So Kate, uh, May Kane uh, is talking about this process called lip pointing. Tell us about why the, the female workers were encouraged to do this. Well, it was the only way you could really get a clean finish on your numbers. So what the girls were doing were tracing the numbers on these dials with very, very fine paintbrushes. They only had about 30 bristles in them. But because the numbers were so fine, you know, some of them, if you think of the smallest pocket watch, um, the numbers on that are only about a millimetre in width. So the bristles would spread with the paint. And as May described, while there was water, they would try and clean the brush with water and then put it in their mouths to make this fine point for this millimetre thick work. And the only way to get that fine point was to put it in your mouth. And I'll just add as well, because May referenced that water, actually, while the girls started with water, a bit later on, it was taken away from them because they found that when you, you know, rinsed your brush in the water, the radium came off and kind of ended up as like sediment in the water dishes and the company deemed that that was wasting the expensive material and so eventually the girls didn't even have the water dishes to clean the brushes with. It was going straight in their mouths and that was it. Now again we should mention that these uh, young women, I mean this was, a, this was a great factory job for them and there was something kind of alluring about working with the radium. They didn't know it was toxic but it glittered. How did that impact um, some of the decisions they made uh, because they didn't know that what they were working with was so toxic in terms of going out um, on the town after work. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the charming and yet horrifying things about the story is, as you say, the girls thought it was perfectly safe. So they would deliberately, for example, wear their good dresses to the plant. So when they went out dancing in the dance halls and later the speakeasies, they would be shimmering with this radium glowing luminous dust because they get covered with it at work. And as I say, they deliberately wear their party frocks so that they could go out dancing. Um, And it's really important to say that, you know, they're with absolutely no sign that this radium was perceived to be toxic even though people had died of it there was this weird situation where because the radium companies who were making money out of the radium industry they were putting it into cosmetics into food they were promoting radium spas where people would go for like a health tonic and that sort of thing um the radium firms making all this money were funding research and that research that they funded apparently proved that radium was safe and so that's what was kind of published in journals and why the radium girls thought it was perfectly safe to get covered in this dust and not only to enjoy that kind of after effect of the job but also sometimes to you know joke around with the material so they would paint it onto their nails there's a story of one Italian girl painting the radium onto her teeth for a smile that glowed in the dark. Uh, We're speaking with Kate Moore, author of The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shiny Women. She joins us today from the studios of BBC London. Um, I wanted to go uh, to a listener um, who actually her mother was one of uh, the the Radium Girls. Uh, Jackie Carroll is joining the conversation. Jackie, uh, welcome to where we live. Well, thank you. I've lived with this all my life, and I watched my mother waste away and die. But um, she was uh, recruited from the graduating class of Wilby High School, and they needed 18 people to work that summer, and she thought it was a great idea before she went away to college. And uh, um, I'm holding a picture of a picnic they had at Quasi, and there were eight, there are 18 girls in a pyramid-like, I don't know what um, I'm probably bleachers were behind it, and these women were recruited from Wilby High School. They were the top-notch graduates, and most of them took the jobs. Um, my grandmother didn't want my mother to take it, but she decided she was going to go with the group. And these 18 women all died of radium poisoning. Uh, my mother was... Um, She died in the hospital at Waterbury Hospital, and she was down to 40 pounds, and nobody could tell us why the doctors at the hospital. She just wasted away, and then she died. Uh, in the hospital at 40 pounds. And Jackie, Jackie, I understand that um, she died when you were still a teenager. That's right. My brother was 12, and I was 15, and then my older sister was... Uh, 18, but most of it was left to me, and I sat with her all the time because she was a wonderful mother, absolutely, totally devoted to us. Uh, One night I just was working my part-time job, and I came home, and one of the neighbors said, um, uh, your mother died, and it was it was just cruel. I mean, she didn't mean anything by it, 
and it was like you know the link it was it linked us all together because the family all lived in the one section of Brooklyn Waterbury well Jackie Jackie I'm so sorry to hear that you lost your mother um, at a young age and that um, that she 15 15 but we thank you for sharing a little bit of the story of your mother uh, you know Kate Moore is on the phone with us she wrote a book called the radium girls the dark story of America's shining women Kate you're probably able to hear uh, Jackie talk about what this was like for the family as these women started to get sick what were they told? How did they find out? Did they ever link uh, their work with the radium lace paint to their condition? They did eventually, but it took a, a very, very long time because the radium firms obviously didn't want their you know, very lucrative industry to be destroyed by these claims. And so the companies try to discredit the women and dismiss the claims, you know, as Jackie was just describing there, you know, the 18 girls working together, 18 girls getting sick, 18 girls dying. And it was the women themselves who were kind of originally making the link, kind of, you know, realising they were all suffering from the same ailment. Surely there must be a connection. But one of the shocking things about the story is is that despite the fact that the first radium girl died in 1922, it wasn't until three years later that officials properly started investigating and autopsies began. And the only reason autopsies began was because finally a male employee of a radium firm died. And it was that that kick-started the proper investigation by the authorities. Now, Kate, I wanted to, in their book, you you do a really thorough job explaining uh, the story of these women, many of them who encouraged their sisters, their cousins, their neighbors to also take these jobs um, in these factories, painting the watch dials. Uh, but when we talk about the fact that, that many of them got sick, it wasn't this quick thing. Can you talk about, we heard May Kane um, in an interview with her, her, her uh, great nephew at the time, that you know she lost all of her teeth by the time she was in her 30s. I mean, these women really suffered. Can you talk us through some of the, the symptoms that they um, had? Yes, I will. I mean, it, it started quite innocuously. It was quite innocent, you know, a, a tooth hurting. You're not going to be alarmed that it is a poisoning to begin with, or if you have an aching limb or a sore hip or something like that. But these were all the early symptoms of radium poisoning. And what happened to them truly was gruesome. You know, May described how she lost her teeth. Well, that was actually only the start of it if you had been thoroughly poisoned because it would essentially attack the women's bodies from the inside out. They were nicknamed in Illinois the Society of the Living Dead and this really was a living death that the women suffered because the radium settled in their bones. There was no way to get it out and once in there it emanated its radioactive power and destroyed those bones while the women were still alive. So when they studied the bones afterwards, they found they were honeycombed and moth-eaten. They had holes in them. And these women were so 
terribly affected by this, by the weakening of their bones that, for example, Grace Fryer had to wear a steel back brace to keep her spine upright because it was devastated. You know, the vertebrae had been crushed by the radium. Um, and also other people, Elizabeth Dunn, who was a Waterbury dial painter, she simply tripped on the dance floor one day and broke her leg because the bones were so fragile. And that is what many of the radium girls experienced. You write in your book, uh, one of the women, uh, Molly Magia, I believe, uh, in 1921, she started working um, at a factory, I believe, in New Jersey, uh, doing the painting these watch dials with the radium lace paint. Um, when she kept going back to the dentist and the doctor to try to figure out what was wrong with her, eventually they diagnosed her with syphilis. Was this common? It, it was common that it was misdiagnosed and, and I think there were probably several girls who were diagnosed with syphilis because the thing, you know, it, it, there were similarities in the disease, but really, you know, it, you can test for syphilis and you can prove whether it is or, or isn't. And in Molly's case, the doctor who was performing the test was actually a dentist and it seems he got mixed up and confused. So even though he said it was a positive um you know, the test came back positive when they actually autopsied her. They said there was no trace of syphilis. But that was a very handy misdiagnosis for the radium firms because, as I say, once the girls started connecting the dots and the radium girls realised it was the radium that had poisoned them and therefore, understandably, wanted answers from the companies who had poisoned them. Well, if you've got some girls who have allegedly died of syphilis, then it's very easy to discredit them, to demean them, and, you know, awful for the families as well that these, you know, slurs, a sexually transmitted disease is what killed their young teenage daughters and sisters. It was very handy for the radium firms because they tried to dismiss all connection to the radium. And that was just a useful example for them. And I understand you mentioned um, the companies when they started to get questions about uh, these women as they were getting sick. Some of them were dying. Um, they were hiring people. I understand a doctor who examined women um, in Connecticut um, that, w that produced a report. But this was not actually a doctor. No, that that's right. I mean, it, it's incredible to think about. But they, yeah, you had you had doctors who were not actually medical doctors but were giving medical advice and as you say testing them and saying that there was nothing wrong with the girls to try and kind of hush this up because radium poisoning is very insidious it takes years to show itself so you know it can be years from that first painful tooth to a more devastating poisoning and so these doctors hired by the Waterbury Clock Company were testing the women and saying no you've got you know there's no trace of radium poisoning in you. There was one woman, Catherine Moore, who was told eight times by the doctors that there was no trace of radium poisoning in her body, and she died of radium poisoning. As uh, more and more of these women were getting sick, um, even though the company was denying that uh, the radium lace paint was uh, the cause, talk us through how some of these women actually then pursued litigation and what happened. 
Well, I mean, for me, this is the extraordinary part of the story because it's a heartbreaking story as we've been talking about these young, innocent women not knowing that they were being poisoned and yet that is what happened to them. But it's not just heartbreaking. It is an inspiring story of strength and courage because despite suffering from these gruesome symptoms we've described of their teeth falling out and their bones breaking inside their bodies, these young women found the courage to fight against these radium firms who were denying responsibility and they embarked on a lengthy and difficult legal struggle to hold the companies to account. And bear in mind that once radium is in your body, it is impossible to get it out. Many of these women knew that they faced a death sentence and yet they still chose to fight and they were doing that in an altruistic way because this was to protect women who came after them, workers who came after them. And that is the legacy that they've left us by pursuing this incredible fight for justice. And I just want to pick up briefly on what happened in Connecticut, um, because that for me is one of the kind of horrifying corporate elements of the story, because there were not... You, you know, there were big court cases in New Jersey and Illinois that became national news and were written about and that sort of thing. But it was very difficult when they were trying to find evidence of the connection, um, you know, to prove this was occupational poisoning, to find cases in Waterbury, documented cases in Waterbury that had gone to the courts and so on. And that was really important because it was the Waterbury women who provided the corroborating evidence that was needed to say this isn't just happening in New Jersey, this is also happening in Connecticut. You know, this is an occupational problem. But the reason they found no legal cases in Connecticut is because the firms essentially paid them off. They kind of paid them, you know, silence money. And they did that because Waterbury obviously was a clock company. It wasn't a radium company. And so in settling, in, you know, having these out of court settlements with the women, they were able to kind of hush up what was happening and it didn't impact on their wider business. And I just want to mention one particular case that really shocked me, which is the case of Mildred Cardo, who is a Waterbury girl, who died aged 22 on the 19th of March, 1929. And her young husband, who they'd only been married for six months before she died, he was offered one of these out-of-court settlements and the money that the company offered him for his wife's death was $43.75. And that, for me, is just... Kate, in your research for your book, do we have any idea how many women uh, were sick after working again at the former Waterbury Clock Company? Also, uh, these uh, factories in New Jersey, there were two, I believe, and one in Illinois, Ottawa, Illinois. How many of these women became sick and how many died? Unfortunately, we can't actually put a number on it, which is another part of the tragedy, I think. That's partly because of the misdiagnosis that I talked about. So many of the radium girls, particularly the ones who became sick first, they weren't buried on death certificates that said their work had killed them. That only came later. And also employment records didn't exist at that time. You know, Jackie mentioned that her mother dial painted. She thought she'd dial paint before she went off to college. And often it was high school students, you know, sometimes 
sometimes just working a summer and there weren't the records there to be able to list all their names. So we can't put a number on it. We can't put a number on the women who died. We also can't put a number on those women who perhaps didn't die in the early wave of things but were still poisoned, still suffered, like May, for example, and like Josephine Lamb, who is another of the Waterbury women who was bedridden for 50 years. Um, and so unfortunately, we just can't put a number on it. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Kate Moore is with us from the studios of BBC in London. She's the author of The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shiny Women. As we've been learning, hundreds of female factory workers, including women in Waterbury, Connecticut, uh, worked in these factories in the early 1920s. Many of them became sick from the radium lace paint. Some died. Did you know that old factory still standing in Waterbury today? What's going to happen to that building? What happened to the other factories in New Jersey and in Illinois? We're going to find out after the break and you can join the conversation too. Had you ever heard of the Radium Girls? Was someone in your family one of these women that worked in these factories? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been learning about the young women who worked in factories in the 1920s uh, painting watch dials with uh, paint that was laced with radium. Uh, on, the f- on the line with us from the studios of BBC London is author Kate Moore. Her new book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Uh, there's a connection uh, to Connecticut in this story. That's because of the former Waterbury Clock Company uh, where uh, a few hundred of these women worked and some got sick and some died at a relatively young age because of the toxic paint uh, they, that they put in their mouths. Uh, I wanted to now join, have Jeff Semansic join us uh, in this conversation. He is director of the Radiation Division at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection because we want to know what's happening with this old factory in the Brass City. Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. I-, I wanted to ask you, when did you first hear about the Radium Girls? Oh. Uh, well, personally, I first heard about it when I started working with the, <laughs> as the radiation director in the state a couple years ago. Uh, but I know that our agency was uh, informed, uh, kind of became aware of the, the issue in about 1998 or so. I think it was through efforts of uh, uh, re- researchers like, like Kate that uh, made that aware to the agency. So tell us about uh, this old factory in Waterbury. Is it pretty much intact? And what's happened with the property? So the uh, the Waterbury Clock Factory is a relatively large complex. Uh, you know, at the time in its heyday, it was probably 3,000 people employed in there in the early 1900s. And it's uh, six or seven large buildings that are spread out over about two um, two blocks. And uh, I would say it's in a mixed state of uh, usage at this point. You know, it's uh, there are portions of the uh, the building that are just from a structural point of view. Um, uh, you know, dangerous to, to access because they've been neglected. Uh, there's other areas that have been uh, uh, are used for light industrial and uh, some areas that are used for residential. When you mentioned about hazardous materials on site, radium dust, but what about radon? Is that a concern? Uh, well, radon's always a concern. I mean, the, you know, there's a couple things. Uh, 
to remember with radon. First of all, uh, you know, radium in itself is does occur in nature. You know, it occurs naturally in soil. It's a kind of a breakdown of uranium and thorium that, that goes there. And, and certain locations are more prone to it, so um, certain types of rock are there. So we always watch for radon in most areas. Uh, at the time when um, the initial remediation efforts were done in the uh, – uh, the clock factory in the late 1900, uh, 1990s, early 2000s, there was a radon test done and uh, had not seen any, you know, significant radon levels. But it's something we continue to, to, to be, be aware of and, and monitor as we, as we watch. Now, we got a call from a, a listener uh, from Waterbury, Jeff, a little bit earlier in the show, and, and he was commenting on the concerns, uh, not only from this factory, but others of, of the uh, contaminants in the soil. I mean, what can you tell Waterbury residents about their safety with this uh, factory still standing? Yeah, so what I, what I can tell you right now is that, you know, that we are concerned about public safety. That's our primary concern. And we've taken the, we've worked with the property owners to make sure the, the appropriate cleanup has been done or the measures are in place to, uh, uh, to ensure access is limited uh, with that. So in the, uh, originally the state had uh, learned about the, uh, the clock factories and they coordinated with the um, EPA and the CDC at the time and went in and and, and did some initial measurements to understand what the scope of, uh, of the issues were. And in, in some areas that, that, that required some remediation, you know, some, some cleanup in some areas to make them um, not to be a, a long-term, you know, public health risk. Uh, and then in uh, 2005, you know, kind of I think as this became kind of a nationally known issue, the, the Congress cha- changed the Atomic Energy Act and gave um, – oversight of radium to uh, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they've gone through a program now where they're going through and, and going back to the places, taking uh, further readings to verify that the, um, you know, the, the areas are safe and that they meet, you know, any regulatory thresholds for, for the public. Uh, we have not, at, to this point, found any radium um, that's uh, above background levels in any of the soils in the Waterbury Clock Factory. But if we find any there, we certainly work with the, the EPA to help us to make sure that, that we do, uh, we take the appropriate, um, uh, you know, appropriate measures to make sure that people and the public are, are, are safe. So at this present moment, there is no plans to actually demolish this factory. Uh, yeah, well, we don't. Yeah, we don't control that. That's really controlled by the property owners. Uh, but what we do know is we know about it. Uh, any plans to to use, you know, to reuse any of the the properties or to um, to demolish them would have to go through the regulatory process to make sure that it's properly measured, characterized, and cleaned up. And so, um, you know, to to the both the federal and the state standards. So I mean, I think the the good, you know, the uh, the positive news there is that we have we know the sites are there, we know what the um, we know if we've seen anything at the site and we, and we would make sure that, you know, they they get cleaned up appropriately. That's Jeff Samancic, Director of the Radiation Division at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Jeff, before you go, we did get a a call from a listener um, who says that her grandmother has an old clock, a clock that may have been painted uh, using this radium lace paint. Uh, Should she be worried about any effects from exposure? Uh, so, you know, the, the biggest concern with radium is really, you know, and I think your, your show has been talked to it, it's really the ingestion of it that's the problem. There is some um, uh, 
there is some you know some emanations that come out some some low level radiation that that will come out um you know your best your best bet there is just to um kind of dispose it you know if you, if you're concerned about it at all um you can contact a you know there's a number of uh, radiological consultants that'll measure it or you could um uh, you know dispose of that um, of the clock there, but the watches are usually individually the the amounts are small on those that they shouldn't present any significant problem to or health risk to uh, to an individual. Jeff Semansic, thank you so much for joining us today. All right, thank you. I want to go back to author Kate Moore uh, from the studios of BBC London. Uh, the the legacy of the Radium Girls continues. Kate, tell us how the research into what happened to these women's impacted the Manhattan Project. Well, the women left an extraordinary legacy in terms of safety. And as you say, the Manhattan Project was part of that because once the Radium Girls brought this to public attention, you know, launched those legal lawsuits and kind of were not silent, they did not take this lying down, people realised that radium and other radioactive materials were dangerous. And so when the Manhattan Project was underway, Glenn Seaborg, who was one of the leading chemists and scientists working on that project, he wrote in in his diary that he had a vision of the shining girls the radium girls as he was walking through the laboratories one night and he remembered what had happened to them he remembered how they sickened and died and he didn't want that to happen to those workers who were employed to win the war for the allies and so he insisted that research be undertaken into the material they were using, the plutonium. And it was found to be biomedically very similar to radium. And therefore, with the radium girls in mind, he insisted that non-negotiable safety standards had to be put in place. Those safety standards were directly based on the radium safety standards, which had been generated by research into what had happened to the girls and by studies on their bones, their bodies. And for me, I just want to add as well, you know, we mentioned earlier how some women did not die in that first wave of the poisoning. They lived on for decades, some of them, with their crippling conditions and again one of the extraordinary altruistic things about the radium girls is that they voluntarily were studied for decades and it's thanks to them that we have most of our knowledge about internal radiation they contributed scientifically for decades they voluntarily underwent blood tests bone marrow you know uh, studies and so on you know and they gave that knowledge as a kind of gift to humanity so that other people were not hurt in the way that they were so in a way we all have to thank the radium girls for the rights that workers have today very much so they had a huge huge impact on that well, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women, it's a really fascinating, hard read, but Kate Moore, you've really brought a, uh, if you pick up this book, you've really brought um, important details about these women's lives uh, to people. Um, so we want to thank you for joining us today from the studios of BBC London. Uh, Kate Moore, thank you so much. Thank you. Today's show produced by Tim Cohn. It's Tim's last day as a production intern at WNPR. He heads back to the University of Michigan for his junior year. We want to thank him for his great work and for pitching this really hard uh, but important story from our history that we should know about the Radium Girls. Again, his great aunt was uh, May Kane, one of the last surviving Radium Girls. She died in 2014 at the age of 107. Thanks, Tim, for your work, as well as Jeff Tyson, technical producer Kion Wolf, executive producer Katie Talarski. You can check out wmpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>